Welcome to the most energetic, positive, happy, and healthy podcast in the world. Living the dream. Dream stands for diet, rest, exercise, attitude, and meaning. I'm your host, certified health coach, motivational speaker, sober since July of 2016, American Ninja Warrior competitor, two-time world record holder, and ultra-marathoner, Matt Scaletti. Here we go! Welcome back to the Living the Dream podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaletti, and we have quite a treat for you today. I am with Andy Newell, and he is a four-time U.S. Olympic cross-country skier. He competed in 06, 2010, 2014, and 2018. He is from Shaftesbury, Vermont, and spent 16 years racing for the USA ski team. In 2006, Andy achieved the first World Cup podium finish for the USA in 23 years. He has scored more World Cup points than any other U.S. male. Andy now lives in Bozeman, Montana with his wife, Erica Flowers, and coaches the Bridger Ski Foundation Pro Team and also runs a coaching website called Nordic Team Solutions. Andy, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm I'm pumped as well. Uh, All right. You want to just kick us off with your background and – if my research serves me right, you started racing at age five. <laughs> so can you talk about your childhood and, and how you fell in love with this sport? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't want to bore you guys with a, with a long-winded bio here, but um, I did grow up in Vermont, which is a, a place dear in my heart. And Vermont is a cool little niche of the Nordic community in that there's lots of little different ski clubs around Vermont. And so I was lucky enough to grow up in an area where my mom and dad were not athletes, neither of, neither of them were athletes. One grew up in, in Philadelphia, one in Pittsburgh, and then moved to Vermont, kind of like, you know, to a, a, a get rid of the, or get out of the city, you know. And um, here in Vermont, they have these cool youth programs. So I was lucky enough to get involved in one of those as a young kid. Um, although I participated in a ton of different sports throughout my youth, I did get started cross country skiing, kind of as soon as I could walk, was kind of racing on skis at five years old. And it's one of those things where just kind of a, fun after school kind of program where you went and skied with your friends um and it was kind of what occupied your winter uh for athletics and so you might play sports like soccer basketball swimming and all these other ones but uh when it came to winter time it was like cross country ski time in vermont and so that meant going out skiing with with your friends and family on the weekdays and hopping in races and stuff on the weekends and so yeah that's how i got started doing those races at a very young age and then um was recruited and lucky enough to to go to the Stratton Mountain School, which is a really cool high school in Vermont that is for alpine skiers, snowboarders, and cross-country skiers. Um, and so it's a really magical place, in my opinion. It's super cool. It's the place where you go to high school there and, like, they have posters of – or these framed pictures on the wall of all these Olympians and stuff because oh. – even at that time when I went there, they had graduated something like 35 Olympians from this school. So when you go there, you're like, it's, that's right around the time where you start thinking, okay, I'm training hard at the skiing thing. Maybe I have a shot at the Olympics. And so I made the move to go to that ski academy um, as a 15-year-old, um, where you basically, at that point, start giving up all these other sports and kind of um, 
you know, normal childhood activities to go to what is a ski academy. And so we would ski during the day, during the morning and pack in a couple hours of classes in the afternoon and then go train again, um, you know, in the evening before dinner and before, before long, you're kind of training full time for skiing, even at that young kind of teenage age and kind of dreaming, dreaming of the Olympics from there. And so I was kind of lucky enough to fall into that development pipeline. That is awesome. I didn't know any of that. So there's a whole school tailored toward this, the, these different yeah. types of skiing. Yeah, and Stratton's well known for its snowboarding, actually, for sure. It's cross-country skiing and snowboarding are the two uh, biggest disciplines there. And they've, um, some of the snowboarders, such as Ross Powers, uh, Lindsey Jacobellis, are just a few of the medalists that have, that have gone through that program. Um, and now as the cross-country skiers, we have Jesse Diggins is a part of that program as well. And she's a gold medalist from 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. Um, so yeah, it's a cool spot to grow up. Yeah, it sounds like it is. So you alluded to it at age 15. Was that the first time you got Olympics in your head? Yeah, for sure. I mean, even at that age, you're at least in the cross country skiing world, you're starting to compete regionally and starting to compete nationally. So you're trying to train for what are called like the junior Olympics. Um, where you're going up against all the other 15, 16 year olds in the country. Um, and it's around that age too, that you start to re what, like, almost like how amazing strength and conditioning can be. And also how your body can transform through aerobic training. That's kind of right around the age where I started to realize, okay, if I go out for a three hour run, I'm getting much more fit from this activity and you start to piece together all these different things about training um, and physiology and how you know if you put in the work you start to see returns especially in an endurance sport like cross-country skiing or running or cycling and so that's the kind of the age where you start to piece together these year-long training plans and you start to log your training you start to keep track of what you're doing every day you're working with a coach on a yearly training plan you're setting monthly goals, weekly goals that kind of correspond with what your yearly goals are going to be as in, in ski racing. Um, and that's kind of when you fall into that rhythm of basically what I consider being a full-time professional athlete. Obviously you're not a professional at that point. You're not making money really with what you're doing. You're just a high school kid, but I still consider that full-time athletics and, and kind of what I would consider a professional skier in some ways, because you're focused on that year long preparation. Yeah, I, I agree. And you brought up the idea of training and you have me thinking. So in my head, and this is me not knowing much about this, is you're skiing every time you're training. But it sounds like what you're saying is you're doing a lot of different, maybe you're lifting weights or like you said, maybe you're running. So I guess the question is how much of the training was hitting the slopes or, or skiing and how much of it was something else? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we are pretty lucky as cross country skiers. We, because of the nature of our sport where we're training pretty high volume. So that means your typical cross country skier at an elite level is training anywhere from, you know, 800 to maybe 900 hours in a year. Um, there's a few that go over 900 hours, maybe pushing a thousand, but kind of the eight to 900 hour a year range is kind of what we consider elite level training. And, and out of those hours, we're lucky enough that we get to do a fair amount of cross training in the summer. So we run quite a bit. Um, we use cycling, mountain biking, road cycling. We're in the gym a couple of days a week. So 
we're kind of on the opposite. Like I think of a professional swimmer and they're just staring at pool tiles all day long. Um, <laughs> we're lucky. We're lucky that we don't have to do that. We can, we can mix in a bunch of different activities um, within our training. And we're also lucky enough to have roller skiing, which is a cross training mode we use in the summer. So they're kind of like really long roller blades and, and we use our ski boots. They click into the roller skis and we're using normal ski boots and normal poles, but we're rolling down the road. Um, and that is actually, it translates really well technically into ski training, into snow skiing. So cross country skiing is a hugely technical sport where you need to be working on like very specific movements um, within the techniques and really dialing in that kind of strength within those movements. And so we're lucky to have a cross training method like roller skiing that we can use in the summer. So we're not totally chasing snow all year round. We definitely log hundreds of hours on roller skis a year in order to prepare for the winter. I saw one of those videos, more than one on your Instagram account, and I had no idea about that. That's cool. I mean, I was really, I was getting a big kick out of that. Uh, can you speak a little bit, Andy, to the, the history of the U.S. ski team? And from, we chatted a little bit before we recorded here. It seems like this is a, Europe is the, the power in cross-country skiing. Can you speak to where the USA was when you started and how it's come along now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you mentioned, Europe is a powerhouse when it comes to cross-country skiing. Um, you can compare it kind of like to road cycling in a way um, in that like the U.S. historically has not been a powerhouse in cross-country skiing. So it was kind of funny as a teenager to be training for this sport. Here you are training to become a professional skier and you have this idea of being an Olympic skier in your mind, but there's no cross-country skiing on TV. You're not like <laughs> checking it out on the weekends. And then all of a sudden – you reach a certain point where I can remember first traveling to Europe as a 16, 17 year old is when I started to travel more to Europe and race in kind of the junior world competitions are called. So I'm going up against, I was named to team USA as a junior. So that means like a 16, 17, 18 year old. And you're going up and racing against all the other juniors in the, around the world. And I remember traveling over there and it was like, not only is it so different cause it's you're, you're traveling to Europe for the first time, but all of a sudden your eyes are open to the fact that, it's like, holy cow, cross-country skiing actually is a big sport over here. It's like on TV every weekend, kids in Norway, Sweden, Russia, they grow up with skis on their feet and they're like, you know, the Tom Brady's of the world are like the cross-country skiers over there. And it's a really weird experience having grown up in the U.S. and then to go experience that for the first time. Um, and so when you're talking about the development of skiing in the U.S., we, when I was named to the U.S. ski team, so I traveled over to Europe um, for my first time as a 16, 17 year old. Uh, and I finished sixth place in the world junior competition. So, and so at the time that was the best finish the U S had ever had. So, um, out of all the under 20 year olds in the world, I finished sixth place in a race. And then, so all of a sudden we kind of got the attention obviously of the U S ski team here in the U S and we, and some folks were like, Oh wow, this is like, we kind of have some young skiers here that are doing pretty well. And so at that time I was named to the U S national team, um, as a high school student. And so I started doing training camps with the U S team. And at that time, the U S ski team was made up of like three guys and three girls. And it was like a six person national team. Um, our funding was really bad. I mean, they didn't have enough money to send people to the world cup. It was, we were definitely under the shadow. If you look at U S ski and snowboard, which is, which encompasses Alpine racing, freestyle, um, you know, aerials, snowboarding, all these different sports, we were definitely at the bottom of that heap um, because, you know, we historically had not won any medals in the Olympics. We've actually only ever won 
one medal, which came in 1976 uh, to a guy named Bill Koch, who won a cross-country skiing medal uh, back in those Olympics. And so um, we just kind of had to start picking away. So there I was named to the national team, basically a team of six people without enough money really to travel to Europe and race. And so we basically just had to focus on development here in the U.S. and we would pick and choose a few World Cups to travel to and and head over to Norway or Sweden or wherever and, and try to race these you know, European nations that have these national teams that are hugely funded where cross country skiing is their national pastime and they're kind of all the funding and all the attention are going to these athletes. Um, so it was exciting. It was a cool transitional time to kind of try to take that on. And, um, by the time 06 rolled around, we started to see a lot more improvement. So I had started to gain a little bit more international experience. And, and in 2006 was when I got my first world cup podium, uh, in a world cup ski race, I finished third place, um, which was the first time that we had had an athlete do that in about 24 years. Um, and kind of, I was not the only one who was seeing success either. We had a, a young gal named Keegan Randall, who's, who's my age as well. Um, and she, the next year got one of her first world cup podiums. Um, and it's just like, goes to show you that all sports are really momentum based. And when you surround yourself with like a powerful team, especially a sport like skiing, where you're racing as an individual, but there's such a huge team aspect. Like once you get that momentum going, um, you can kind of like the old saying where like, you're only as strong as the people around you. It's like, you see that so much in a sport like skiing. Um, and so it's like once one person on the team starts showing success, everyone else starts to get a little more confidence. You're bringing in more sponsorship money. Uh, and before we knew it, this team of like six national team members turns into now it's a team of 20 and we show up at the Olympics and, we're medal hopefuls now at, at basically every world championships and Olympics we go to um, when, you know, it wasn't even that long ago, which was, you know, mid two thousands when I was first racing world cups, we were basically a joke. One of the strongest teams in the world. So it's been fun to be part of that progression. I mean, that's incredible. I'm, you laid that out so perfectly. Uh, I just, I love that. And is it true then that when you're competing in all these world cups, are you traveling basically outside of the United States for all of them from, you know, 05, 06, 07 and on, because we don't really have a place for it here. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty uncommon. World cups take place all over the world, but it's, it's uncommon for them to take place in North America because there are no big organizing committees that want to host cross country skiing world cups in the, in the U S and in Canada, we have had some over the years. And so we're, as the success of us and in the Canadian team have increased, like we've started to see more world cups, in North America, but yeah, exactly. So that it's in 14 to 15 different countries. Um, and the race season starts in about middle of November and runs through, uh, the, around the 1st of April. So as a, as a young athlete, we would basically take off on the road to Europe. Um, and you're racing about 35 world cups in 14 different countries. So you, it's multiple world cups in each country and you kind of just bop around, Europe and kind of spend two weeks here, two weeks there, uh, following the tour around. And it's crazy. I mean, especially like I said, as an American where cross country skiing is not a well-known sport, you show up at these races and there might be like 80,000 people there, like oh in these stands. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's like, you're all of a sudden you're getting stopped like in the airport because people know who you are. And it's like, it's a really strange thing to do that as an American when like you return home and nobody really cares about your sport. But over there, it's like, it's like the crowds are deafening because you might, I remember doing a race in Norway, which is one of my favorite places to race. And we have these, we would do these races right in the downtown streets where they put snow down and you kind of race down the street 
Um, and one of my most memorable podiums was, was reaching the podium at this drama and ski race. And, and that's one of the races that pulls in easily 80,000 people around this one mile loop. Um, and the crowd is just so loud. Uh, and it's so fun. We, we kind of call it the lion's den. Cause it's like, you're going into the backyard of like the most competitive <clears throat> ski nation in the world. And you're going up against all these Norwegians, uh, in a world cup field, which is actually more competitive than an Olympic field, which a lot of people don't realize, wow, um, because the, the fields are, are deeper in a world cup than in an Olympics. Um, because in Olympics, obviously you have, uh, each country can only start four athletes versus eight or 10 athletes. So, um, it was so fun to go up against those Norwegians in those, in those big kind of stadium type races. Um, and it's even more fun to beat them. It's kind of like, <laughs> Like an American winning a World Cup over there, it's kind of like a, be like a guy from Switzerland, like winning the Super Bowl, like as a quarterback for the Patriots or something. It's like it's just so like out of the normal for them. It's like it's, it's what made it pretty fun. Oh, I think that is that is awesome. So I have to ask about this eighty thousand people in this one mile loop. Is it? I think my question is about mindset and can you calm yourself down to the point of playing your game, so to speak, or maybe the first time, was it tough to not look around and go, Oh my God, I can't believe how many people are here. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the first time it's when you're, when you're not used to racing in front of that many people, it's a little unnerving, but um, I mean, it's part of the sport and I'm sure that's something that I don't know how, for example, like collegiate football players or, or, you know, baseball players and NFL players, basketball players, how they prepare for their sport. But we, I'm sure they do a lot of mental training and this, the same kind of stuff we do to kind of get ready for that type of, um, I guess you could call it playing field or that type of stage that you're going to, going to compete on. Um, you know, a lot of, that's like so much of athletics comes down to being able to make it happen when it counts, you know, and we spend years and years and years, months and months preparing mentally to go to one race, whether it's the Olympics or world cup or whatever, and make sure we can compete our best on that day. Um, and it comes down to, yeah, doing quite a bit of mental training, making sure you're mentally resilient. We do a ton of, um, you know, relaxation. Some people call it meditation, that kind of stuff, uh, leading up to championships or world cups like that. We do a ton of visualization, um, a ton of positive self-talk, which is huge for athletes. And I'm sure football players and basketball players all use these same types of strategies. It's nothing new in athletics. Um, and, and just cause you're doing an endurance sport, so to speak, like cross country skiing doesn't, um, you know, we're doing the same types of mental training exercises that all professional athletes are doing. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's great insight. How long, Andy, how long are the races like time-wise and what's the distance? Are they all the same or do they differ based on the event? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you could compare cross country ski racing to track and field in that we have a various length races that compete, you know, um, in the same venue, so to speak. And so for us, the shortest race we have is about a mile long. That's what we call a sprint in ski racing is, a, is about one mile long. And from there we range up into 10 kilometer, 15 kilometer, 30 kilometer and 50 kilometer. Um, but the unique thing about skiing is, and it's similar to road cycling, that is that all athletes kind of compete in all these disciplines. Um, so it'd be like a track and field runner having to compete in a 10K, a mile, and a marathon, but yeah. like kind of do it all within a course of a season, um, which is fun. I mean, that's like 
we, we touched a little bit earlier about, we were talking about how training for skiing is somewhat elusive and it's, it, it is because there's so much training theory and just kind of mysterious, um, funny things that cross your skiers do to prepare for races because we don't really have a set distance. So you're racing so many different distances throughout a year and you're also competing on rolling terrain. So it's not, like a swimming pool is more or less the same. Every swimming pool you go to a track more or less the same, every track you go to, but in ski racing, you have different courses, different speed, snow, um, you know, it's, there's just so many of these weird variables that make it a very strange sport to wrap your head around, um, in a very unique sport to train for because you're, you're racing everything from a mile to a 50 K and you're doing it in all these different conditions. So we're, we're traveling with 30 plus pairs of skis to these races to try to test the skis, get, make sure we have the right skis running on course. Um, and then trying to train our bodies and prepare our bodies for this, these different ranges of, of races is, is something that's pretty unique to the sport. Oh, I'm so glad you just went into all that because you just, you taught me a heck of a lot. I mean, that's, uh, I can't even imagine doing all those different ones. I mean, that's, so along those lines, how much do you think is mindset and how much is the physical body when it comes to any event, I guess? <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, we always talk about those percentages, like what separates the good from the great. Yeah. Um, what separates a gold medal winner from you know, somebody who's off the podium when nowadays in all sports, I think in cross country skiing is no exception. may travel so quickly these days. Like everyone is training hard. Everyone is doing like similar interval sessions. Everyone's training huge hours, you know, 900 hours a year, if not more, everyone's busting their ass in the gym. Mm -hmm. Everyone's working on technique like video and all kinds of things are travel so quickly these days where you can, um, basically what Russia is doing is not much far off than like what Norway's doing and what we're doing and what Sweden's doing. Like everyone is training hard. And so at the end of the day, when you have everyone that's super fit, everyone has a VO two max of like 90 plus what's going to separate a gold medal winner from somebody who doesn't. And it, that's kind of where that small percentage, you know, that winning margin comes in. And, and sometimes it could, does come down to who's more mentally tough. Um, Crossroads skiers are notorious. I'm sure you've seen like, maybe the compilations of like ski racers just flopping down at the end of the race. We're, oh yeah. They're known for flopping, you know, um, <laughs> cause you get, you just get into this pain cave, we call it, you know, and you just, it, it is kind of a meditative state where your, your legs are burning, your arms are burning and your, your heart's beating at 90s per minute, but you have to somehow be focused on what the athletes around you are doing, still kind of understand the tactics of the race and be able to execute your tactics. So, know when to draft, know when to pull into the lead, know when to attack. Um, and it's the athletes that have trained that, that have become most successful. And so that's something we work a lot on these days. We call it mental cueing actually is kind of the, the word we use to describe it. And so when we're training, for example, like say just the other day, I was doing some intervals here with my team and we're working on mental cueing. So what we do is, is we go out for a roller skiing. We're doing some super hard intervals. So at like 90% of max heart rate doing some hill repeats and during this workout, I'm having the athletes basically work on their self-talk. So they're, they're working on thinking about like external movements, for example. So maybe thinking about keeping their poles at a certain height or keeping their hands at eye level. And so when their lungs are burning and like they have lactic acid of, you know, 17 plus in their legs and their heart rates are super jacked at the end of a race and you're trying to sprint next to somebody, you're not 
you learn to channel out what the people around you are doing and focus on what you are doing and how to adjust your own technique and kind of stay within your own pain cave a little bit. Um, and that's how, that's how winners succeed more often. There's a funny, uh, I love this saying, I've used it so much throughout my athletic career. And when I'm working with young athletes, we have a kind of a mental, um, mental resilience saying that I like to use with, with young athletes. And that is that when an archer hits the bullseye, it takes them completely by surprise. That's one of my favorite sayings that I um, try to pass on to young athletes. So when an archer hits a bullseye, it takes them completely by surprise. And what that means is that archer is so focused on the process, on what they're doing. They're focused on their own breathing. They're focused on their technique. They're focused on where their elbow is, where their fingers are. They're not thinking about that gold medal. They're not thinking about crossing the finish line so that when they do, it takes them completely by surprise. And you see that in Olympic skiing events as well. It's like people are so in the zone trying to push their body to the absolute limit that when they finally cross the finish line and like, maybe they flop on the ground, maybe they don't, who knows <laughs> that they like, all of a sudden it's like, Holy cow, I just want a gold medal. They almost like don't even re like it takes a second to register because they're so used to that mental training side of things where they um, can kind of switch in and out of this internal and external mindset where they're kind of completely entrenched in the zone and what they're doing. Wow. That is, I, I'm right, trying to write down everything you're saying with the pain cave and mental cueing. I mean, there's so much that it's not, you know, if you watch it on TV and you're like me, it's, it looks simpler than it is. I mean, there's 4,000 things going on behind the scenes and in your head and the different kind of skis. And Andy, I, I think this rolls into one of the things I wanted to ask you, which is how, so we're talking about mental preparation and visualizing. So let's say you're mentally prepared and physically prepared, you're ready to go. Is there an example you can think of when you were competing and you had to just tear up what you thought you were going to do because whatever happened and, and you had to pivot and completely change your game plan? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, we kind of have to do that on a fairly regular basis in ski racing because, um, you know, we don't need to dive into the, the equipment side of it too much, but there are, like we mentioned, when we travel to races, we have a huge arsenal of skis. And, and we also, when we're traveling to, into these world cup events, we have, um, we travel with about six wax technicians they're called. And so for the U S team, we have, we employ, about six ski technicians who travel with us to all these world cups. And we have this bus now, I mean, go back to talking about where we came from and where we are now. When I first started racing world cups, it was like me and two coaches on the world cup. And we would kind of rent out this old Connex trailer to rent to like wax skis. Um, we were like super scrappy operation. Nowadays we have this like transformer truck that the U S ski team owns. Um, and it's the waxing truck and all these, um, countries have these waxing trucks and it, it looks like a, looks like a transformer. It's like a, a semi truck that looks like a transformer. So the walls pump out and the, the ceiling bumps out and it turns into this massive, basically, you know, several rooms on wheels. And so our, our tech team on the U S squad is run by an Estonian guy uh, named Oleg. He's awesome. And we have a couple, um, one French guy uh, and two Swedish guys that used to work with the team. And these guys are like scientists of skis, basically. And all they do is wax skis. They study wax. They study the wax that goes on the skis. Um, they test the skis as far as the glide and the structure that's on the base of the ski, um, which is why. So each athlete has about 30 or 40 pairs that we might travel to, to a given race. And 
they help narrow down that fleet into like three or four race skis for race day um, with the correct wax and the right grind and structure on the bottom. And, those, and then on race day, you test those few pairs um, and kind of narrow it down to one pair. And that's the pair you race on. So obviously conditions can change. You have to be mentally resilient as a cross country skier to be able to like, you could be on the start line, it might start snowing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's like, what are you going to do now? Like all of a sudden the snow conditions have changed. Um, and so because of that, you have to be, we use the term mentally resilient. So you have to constantly change your game plan. Um, and we've had races where the wax is totally botched. And so you go into this race, maybe and it's a, it's a classic race. So that means we're using this little bit of grip wax on the bottom of our skis to stride up some of the hills and that wax may not work, in which case you just have to use your upper body. So essentially you're like going to row, you're basically rowing like a 10 kilometer versus using your legs. Um, and so every once in a while you find yourself in a instance like that, where you have to instantly kind of change your game plan, um, execute as best you can. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes you can scrape away with a win and, and sometimes you can't, but, um, you know, since we're on the topic of funny sayings and I love, I like to use little, little sayings. Uh, we have, we use a saying on our team, which is have your best worst day. And sometimes you need to do that on the ski, on the ski track is have your best worst day. So that means if you feel like crap, you didn't sleep well overnight, it doesn't matter. You can still win a world cup. If your skis aren't the best in the field, it doesn't matter. You can still squeak out a win if you have to. And so that's what having your best worst day means. I love that. That's such a, I mean, and that's gotta be such an uplifting quote if you do feel like crap, because now you could still win. There's yeah. no excuses, right? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So I, we got to get into the Olympics because I can't wait to hear about your experience. Um, but I guess before that, can you tell us you, you're a four time Olympian, clearly you're loving what you're doing. You're extremely disciplined. What the heck drives you or, or did drive you, on a daily basis and did you have days where you did have a horrible day but you had to push through anyways and how'd you do that what was the what was the driver that's a good question i think most professional athletes have more than one driver behind what motivates them on a daily basis and and they, it can change on the daily basis it can change on a weekly basis and, and yearly basis and so it's funny i think a lot of what motivated me early on was like I wanted to prove myself to the rest of the world, kind of like what we're talking about, how Americans were not taken seriously on the world cup. I wanted to prove to myself. I wanted to prove it to the rest of the U S and I wanted to, you know, more importantly, prove it to the competition and all the European countries that we could do this um, as good, if not better than anyone else. And so at first that's kind of like what gets you out of bed in the morning is like that idea of, you know, one day being on Olympic start line, actually going to the Olympics and, being a metal contender, um, you know, not just a participant, a particip participant in the Olympics, but actually a contender, um, is what drives you to get out of bed every day. And like, um, yeah, that's, you kind of set big goals and you work your way backwards. So usually at the beginning of a season, we'll set some big goals for the year, whether it's winning a certain world cup, or maybe it's, you know, winning an Olympic medal and you work your way back. You're like, okay, if I'm going to win a medal on February 22nd of this year in Chang, I'm going to have to do this. And then if I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to do this. And kind of you work your way backwards a year or more in advance and you kind of map out what you need to accomplish both results wise, but also just physically wise, physical testing. We do a ton of testing on skis, VO2 max testing, uh, strength testing, uh, basically just fine tuning our bodies. We do recovery testing. 
um, you know, crossing your skiers were one of the first athletes to adopt like HRV monitoring. I, I was doing that back in like around 2010, even like sleeping out overnight with a electrodes on your chest where you're measuring your recovery and HRV data. And so, yeah, you're just trying to fine tune that physical aspect and at the same time fine tune what you're doing mentally so that when you, when you do get to the Olympics, you can make it happen. And then it's funny cause I look back on my career and I feel like out of the four Olympics, I'm yet to have my best Olympic race. And that's something that you just have to come to grips with at, you know, at one point or another, I don't, I, I actually crashed out of one Olympic event. Um, maybe in the event that I was most suited and prepared for to win a medal in, in 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, I crashed during qualification. Um, and that was one of the hardest things I had to deal with as an athlete was how you mentally rebound from that kind of, um, you know, you want to call it devastation or whatever, but where you're training basically four years for this event and you crash out, you know, how you bounce back from that. Um, and it was tough. I was able to bounce back and get on the, on the podium on a world cup two weeks later, but it wasn't the Olympics, you know, it wasn't like all my friends and family had flown out. They were all there at this Olympics. And here I am in qualification, just nuking this downhill trying to, you know, go as fast as I can, which is kind of what I was known for as being slightly fast and out of control a little bit on the cross three skis. And I ended up crashing out of a, out on a corner. Um, and unfortunately I was kind of the U S hope on that day to win a medal and we didn't get it done. Um, so it's funny. I look back at my Olympic career and it's like, I was never able to put it together on the day when it really counted. Um, but I don't dwell on that and I don't like think back and have a, have any regrets really. And it's funny just how you evolve as an athlete because, you know, back then I was in like what you call, if you're familiar with the stages of life, you know, which you, I bet a guy like you are, I bet you are Matt, you know, familiar yeah. with the, uh, you know, back then you're in your athletic warrior phase, we call it, you know, where all you want to do is prove that you are the best in the world. And that, you know, if we're talking about motivation, that's what motivates you. You want to go just smash people. That's what gets you out of bed every day is to, to prove that you are the best in the world to yourself and, and to others. Um, and any athlete who says they don't want to prove they're doing all to prove to themselves is basically full of shit. I think, cause you always <laughs> want to prove yourself to others as well. It may not be the driving factor of what gets you out of bed every day, but you know, proving yourself to others is, is important. I mean, if any, we talk about that in a team setting where like you train side by side with your teammates, you want to prove it to your teammates and not let them down either. Um, but yeah, so I would say in that stage of my life, for sure for my first three Olympics, which were in 2006, 2010 and 2014, I was in that warrior phase. I was like, for sure, a medal contender each time, unfortunately never made it happen, got close, but never was able to win a medal on that day. Um, but then if I look back on my fourth Olympics, that's when in a lot of ways I was, we, you know, we talk about improving, you know, you're only as good as the people around you. And it took probably until my fourth Olympics that I was surrounded with a team of so many more competitive athletes um, to the point where I was, you know, past that warrior phase that we call that like warrior phase and more into a point in my life where I was, if even if anyone on the team would win a medal, I would consider that a victory. And so it was a huge day for us as a team. I was there right on the sidelines when Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall won their team sprint. Um, medal and they won a gold medal and it was in a it's fun it sounds kind of cheesy and funny to, to be like oh yeah that was a medal that the whole team won but having been on the team for 16 years up until that point and having raced in four olympics and not got it done myself um that was a huge day and and it 
it did feel like a shared victory across the board, despite me kind of racing like a bag during the Pyeongchang Olympics. I had my, that was maybe my worst Olympics ever. I just didn't time my peak, didn't time my fitness right. Um, but in a way, we kind of all walked away with the medal, which was incredible. I think, I mean, there's like 10 takeaways in there. I mean, that's, I love that whole one team idea that you guys had in 2018, those Olympics. There's a video floating around on YouTube, I think, about that. That the big setting big goals and then working backwards. I think anybody listening or watching this, it doesn't matter if you want to be an Olympian or run a 5K. I mean, you can just think, hey, I got to run a 5K, work backwards. How much do I need to run today? And in the next couple of days. So there's, I mean, you have so many great takeaways in there, including one of my favorite quotes, which is, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So it seems like you're a huge believer of that. Um, I got to ask you, Andy, what's, um, what is your, what are you most proud of as far as your accomplishments? And I guess, I don't know if this is the same question, but to me, the person that's not involved, the Olympics is like, you know, that's the Olympics. That's the biggest scale. But from what you're saying, you're changing my perception of that. It seems like the World Cup is a deeper field and tougher. So what's been, what's been your most proud accomplishment? And you don't have to be humble anyway. You can, like, bring it. But. <laughs> um, it's funny. I can't really pinpoint. Obviously, I have races that stand out in my mind as, like, you know, great achievements that I'm super proud of. And, and a lot of them are World Cup podiums um, because, yeah, I mean, there are sports that very much revolve around the Olympics. And, and it's funny because the U.S. really puts a huge emphasis on, on Olympics. Oli uh, the U.S. loves Olympic medalists, you know. It's like the one time a year that skiing is on TV. Um, so it's easy for people to rally around that. Um, but in reality, like, we're racing 34 World Cups a year. Um, and if the driving factor for me, having been a professional skier for so long, if, if the driving factor is like winning gold medals, if I were to put so much emphasis on winning gold medals, and even if I did win a gold medal, that's like one fun day, amazing day for every four years. That's not enough to sustain you really as any human, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of falls back on the importance of surrounding yourself with positive people that have like-minded goals because you can't train, you know, that many hours a year with the sole purpose of being, of, of your goal being win an Olympic medal. Um, you know, it's not a sustainable way of life. It's, it wouldn't be a happy existence for most athletes if all you wanted to do was win Olympic medals. So, you know, back to your question, some of the things that make me look back on my career and be most proud or most happy are some of those breakthrough results. Maybe it's, you know, scoring my first world cup point you know that means being top 30 on the world cup um you know for sure being on the podium in norway and some of those races is huge for me um just to go and kind of into the lines then and, and prove to everyone what we can do and i think just seeing the level of progression happen here in, in the u.s like uh we this past season had the U.S. men at the World Junior Championships uh, won the relay uh, for cross-country skiing. So that's the four-person relay. Yeah. Uh, and we had one guy uh, finish, uh, win a gold medal in the 10K. And it's like, when I look back on my career, though, though that was our, like, I wasn't even at that race. I was watching it on TV. Um, but I was so proud of those guys because we've come so far as a country to the point where, like, 
you know, my sixth place at World Juniors was like an unheard of thing. And now we're winning the relay and winning gold medals basically on a yearly basis at the junior level. And so I'm just so proud to have been a part of that progression. Um, when I went to my first Olympics, I was, I mean, I say young, but, you know, I was 21 years old, which isn't particularly young, but for a crossover skier, it's quite young for your first Olympics. And I went to my first games in all reality, having a huge chance at winning an Olympic medal. And I never did because I think I didn't have the mindset of like, you can do this, you can win. And my coaches didn't have that mindset either. So this was back in 2006. Um, even after having a little bit of world cup success, it was one of those things where like you go to your first Olympics as a chance to gain experience. Um, and kind of, especially at that age, early twenties to kind of gain experience. You come back four years later and, and maybe win a medal. And in looking back in hindsight, that was a completely wrong approach. And I wish I would have been more mentally strong at that time to be like, and more confident to just be like, I could win in a medal here. This is my first Olympics. I've only raced a handful of world cups. I'm the youngest guy in this field, but I could win this race. Um, because looking back, I was totally physically capable of winning that race that day, but I wasn't prepared. I don't think mentally to make it happen. And so now when I see that, I love the fact that our, I'm so proud of the fact that the U S has come so, so far that now these younger guys and girls are showing up to their first Olympics, knowing that they can be medal contenders without having to like gain experience or kind of, you know, mature into the, the into the role of being Olympic skier because our country has come so far. So that's probably what I'm most proud of is that some of these young athletes coming up are going to, um, yeah, they're going to win medals. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that in the next Olympic cycles, we'll be winning at least one Olympic medal per Olympics. And you can quote me on that. We'll win at least one medal every Olympic cycle for the next decade or more. And that's because, yeah, that's because we've, we've gotten better as a country and we've worked together and it's like, it, it does sound weird, but eventually at some point, um, having focused so much on your own results as an athlete, it's, it's a refreshing perspective as you get older. Um, you know, having raced World Cups from the point where I was 18 until I was 36 years old. Uh, it's cool to be able to really share in that success and get, get stoked on some of these younger kids that are coming up because they're going to be better than I ever was. And that's, at the end of the day, that's the name of the game. You're, yeah, you're right. And I'm, I'm going to send you this clip every time we win a medal so you can just be right every four there years. I'm definitely in. <laughs> well, and you mentioned momentum. I can't help but think the momentum that you and three to five others started in 2006. It seems like that ball is getting bigger and bigger as it's rolling down the hill, which is, that's just exciting. I, I, I love that. Um, okay. So I'm looking at your shirt. I know a little bit about the Nordic team solutions. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, I think you made a great point, Andy, and I wouldn't know, I've never been an Olympic athlete, but you seem, you seem to me like you've done a great job of transitioning from you know, intense, hardcore athlete to now figuring out what the next step is going to be with Nordic Team Solutions and your coaching. Can you speak to the transition and what you're up to now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it kind of goes back to those, um, you know, those we want to get super zen on you guys, but uh, it goes back to those stages of life. And when you're younger, you're very focused on that athletic warrior phase where you just want to smash results and crush everything. And I'm definitely at the point now in my career and have transitioned there over the last few years to be in what we call like the statesman stage, which is you, you want to kind of leave a legacy and make sure um, you start to realize that 
it isn't all just the results that you accomplish individually that are important to you, but it's kind of the, the people you bring up around you. And that is essentially where Nordic Team Solutions started was the idea of, um, I started hosting ski clinics for younger athletes. Um, and we are getting better as a country, but we still have some room to go as far as like coaches education and, and how we are developing athletes across the board. Um, and so that's kind of where Nordic team Solutions started. So now I run a training website where I communicate with coaches and athletes and I, you know, post content on a regular basis, working on technique and, you know, training theory, finding ways to become more fit, strength and conditioning exercises, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and my motto here is uh, always be a student of the sport is what I've learned. It's kind of a, a motto I've taken with me as I've gotten older as an athlete and the concept of being a student of the sport means like never having the ego that you feel like you know it all and you do it right. Even the best coaches in the world, you may have produced, you know, you know, 10 Olympians out of your program. It doesn't mean you're doing everything right. And it doesn't mean you can't continue to evolve and learn, uh, especially in athletics where technology is changing on a yearly basis. Um, the way athletes prepare is changing, you know, everyone's, you know, hopefully becoming more advanced on a yearly basis and, and fitter and stronger and if you are training the same way now as you were six years ago, you're already outdated in some ways. And so the whole concept of being a student of the sport is something I just think is really fun. I, 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 because I became a professional skier so early on, I never went to college or got any kind of like formal education. But for me, the whole physiology concept of like tying in physiology with psychology and like mental training and physical training and kind of finding ways to bring them all together and see how they tie into elite athletics is really what kind of drives me intellectually. And so this has kind of been where my career has gone now is I, I still, I train professional athletes now. So I work with a group of about 20 here in Bozeman um, and I still train with them on a daily basis. So I'm still training like 800 hours a year. I'm just not, I'm just a technically a retired skier. <laughs> so now I'm just really tired all the time. Cause I just train and I train so hard and I don't rest anymore. Um, but yeah. And I'm, and I'm really happy with that transition because I still am able to get outside exercise and push myself on a daily basis. But instead of worrying about my own results, I can help, you know, other younger athletes achieve theirs. And that's, that's kind of how Nordic team Solutions started. I love it. And I'll ask you one last question, then we'll wrap up it. What's, what's next for, for Andy, and you, you actually had me thinking when you said maybe you haven't had your best Olympics yet. I'm like, is he going for it? And, was it 2022, 20, I guess, or what, yeah. what's next? What's on the horizon? That's a good question. I mean, I think I'm going to be, I don't want to make it sound like the, you know, I answered that last question, making it sound like retiring from professional athletics was an easy transition. I think it's always hard for anybody um, to anyone who focused on their, on being at the top of their athletic game for so many years. And for me, it was, you know, a 20 year run of being a professional skier. Um, it's hard when you, you know, your body doesn't respond the same way it does anymore. I, I had a back injury about almost two years ago where I ruptured a disc in my back and I was coming back for that and actually made it back to the point where I was a world cup competitor again and pretty competitive on the world cup. I raced to a top 15 on the world cup, uh, even two seasons ago. Wow. And you kind of reach a point where it's like, I could keep plugging away doing this. Like I could even maybe make another Olympic team, but are my chances of winning a medal, they get, you know, increasingly smaller, the older I get, you know, am I going to win a medal at 38 years old? It's a, 
very small chance. And for me, I'd rather put my day-to-day effort in to help other people achieve those other folks achieve that goal than, than myself. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And that's kind of what motivates me on a daily basis. Um, but I'm always going to train hard. I'm always going to be that guy that's doing intervals. I do intervals alongside my athletes on a weekly basis. I run time trials with them. Um, and it's fun because I'm kind of experimenting with this new form of coaching where you're actually in the field with them all the time um, and pushing them. You're just not directly competitive. With, uh, you're not competing against them and putting the bib on a, on a, on a weekly basis during the winter. So it's, it's kind of a fun experiment to be the coach that's out there in the field with the athletes logging those, you know, I'm doing the four hour runs with them. I'm doing the five hour roller skis and I'm doing the intervals with them. And so you really form a super strong bond and it's something that, I think people feel that in all types of athletics. And I think you see it in the military, you see it in all kinds of instances where folks are forced into uncomfortable situations with each other for a long period of time. You form this bond that is like indescribable and it's something that ski teams form. And that's kind of going back to that one team. It's, it's why teams are so important in a tough endurance sport like cross country skiing, because you form this bond when you're out there grinding with each other day after day um, it's a really magical relationship and it's, it's one that allows you guys to allows us to push each other to new, new heights. And, and, um, yeah, I wouldn't trade that for the world. And so now I'm able to do that on the coaching side and, and I'm not, you know, I don't have the athletic goals personally, but I have goals for my, the athletes that I coach and I can still work out with them on a daily basis. Oh, that's so the way you word all these, I mean, it's almost like, you know what I'm going to ask you. And he knows nothing, by the way, just so everybody knows. I mean, you, you're so well-spoken and thought out with these answers. It's, uh, I can't wait to watch this one again because I'll, I'll be able to finish writing all my notes. Uh, all right, so we got what's next. The door is not necessarily all the way closed, uh, but I, uh, maybe you'll be the first 38-year-old gold medalist. Who knows? I don't know if that's happened before. Uh, all right, so I, I got to respect your time. And what we're going to do now, if you're up for it, Andy, is – the final five, so it's a little quick, rapid fire, five questions I ask everybody at the end. And if you, can, if you can answer in like a sentence or two, let's go for it. You ready? Sounds good. All right. How do you want to be remembered? As the guy that had the most fun on skis. Oh, I love it. And by the way, a little plug for uh, X-Ski Films, if anybody <laughs> wants to see some fun insanity on skis, YouTube X-Ski Films, because... That's a blast. I love watching it. Uh, what are you most thankful for? Uh, thankful for my wife and living here in Bozeman and all the outdoor opportunities we have right now. Uh, I love that. My wife has been to Montana and said, I have to get there. So hopefully at some yeah. point I'll get Man, out there. It's beautiful. You got to check it out. That's what she keeps telling me. Uh, okay. My favorite question. If I see Andy at a wedding reception and he's dancing, what's his best dance move? Oh, well, I'll probably be dancing to Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. Um, <laughs> I love that song. I know that song. Uh, no, no. Um, <laughs> let's see. I don't know. Wasn't, I, I can't even put a name on a dance move, but Crossfit Skiers, you know, we, we work on a lot of dynamic hip motions and stuff. So <laughs> I would say we are, I wouldn't say we're good dancers, but it's, uh, it's lively dancing to say the least. So maybe you'd call it the, you'd call it the, the skater. It's my dance move I do on the wedding dance floor. We call it the skaters, and it looks like you're crossing your skiing, but you're really just dancing. <laughs> hey, lively is better than good at dancing anyways, right? Uh, what's the biggest obstacle you've overcome? Oof, that's a tough one. I think 
I got to say coming back from, uh, that I had a herniated disc in my back and, uh, man, that's been the biggest or the first major setback, uh, injury wise I've, I've taken as an athlete. And, um, man, I just have so much more respect and, and admiration for athletes that go through that kind of up and down. It's a roller coaster to have like basically your livelihood taken away from you in an instant and have to call your way back through all the hours of PT and, and exercises and nonstop focus it takes to come back from a big injury like that. It's a, it's a challenge and something that I'll look back on and be grateful. I, I have the opportunity to experience, I hope at some point. <laughs> well, I hope so too. For your sake. <laughs> uh, all right. Last one. Who is your hero? Dang. Uh, let's see to put it in context of another sport, man, I guess I'd have to say, Somebody like Kelly Slater. I mean, that guy's what, 45 years old, and he's still doing what he loves, having a good time doing it, um, helping bring up other professional surfers, helping to push the level of surfing, helping, um, you know, to drive the sport forward with some of the innovations he's doing with, you know, wave pools or board technologies, all that kind of stuff. You know, he's an older guy, but he's still so involved in the sport, and that's kind of what I want to do for cross country skiing. Oh, I love that. I got to look him up because I'll be honest, I don't know if I know who that is, but I'm going to look him up after we're done. Uh, okay, Andy, last one is just how can people connect with you more? Uh, were you active on social media? Is there a way people can follow you and reach out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can find me on social media at uh, Andy Newell Skier. Um, I'm on their Instagram. I used to have Facebook. I used to have uh, Twitter, but my Twitter got hacked. I never got it back. So, oh, man. That's, you know, that's what you're going to. It's the price you pay as an athlete with one of those blue check marks by your name. Yeah, um, yeah I'm on Instagram, Andy Newell Skier. Um, you can find us online at nordicteamsolutions.com. And uh, yeah, because on YouTube too, we're always, we are posting like roller ski videos and strength and conditioning videos. Um, and I love to hear, you know, I skiing, I, I love to train and see like what other people are doing for training from other sports. I love to incorporate other sports into the cross country ski training, whether it's track and field, football, soccer, I follow a ton of like football, like as in American football and like soccer players on Instagram. And I love watching the stuff they do for training um, with agility and, and dynamic movement. And so, yeah, if you're somebody that gets stoked on, you know, learning more about training and bouncing training ideas off people, I'd love to hear from you. So find me on social media. I love it. And I'm one of those guys too. So uh, maybe we'll chat offline. Yeah, uh, yeah. And hey, Andy, thank you for your time. I, I just have to say, I think it's amazing how, I mean, you're such an insanely accomplished athlete and to put your stories in perspective and give us takeaways that the quote unquote average person can use. That was powerful. And you, you just said all of those points very, very well. So thank you for your time and thank you for your insights. No, thank you very much. I mean, you, I love your energy. You're a, you're a, you're a huge motivation. It's awesome. I love, uh, happy to be here with you. And thanks for sharing these stories. You're welcome. Thanks again, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Living the Dream with Matt Scaletti. I'm so grateful for you. Please share this podcast on your social media so others can benefit from this valuable content. Also, please subscribe to my podcast because if you aren't, I am watching you. <laughs> Check me out on social media and message me if you need me as your keynote speaker at Matt Scaletti on social media. I respond to all messages. 
thanks and I love you so much.